All right. So, Psalms um, are, um, in some denominations, you, uh, I've, I've found out that the Psalms are really, really important. That's all they sing. And some um, don't have any music to go with it. There's lots of convictions about the Psalter, is what many call the Psalm, Book of Psalms. And um, I found that uh, the Psalms have been helpful in prayer, helpful in praise, oftentimes um, just so welcoming to go to and, and counsel of uh, my own soul and, and to others. Uh, the Psalms are just a rich source of theology and of history, uh, the biblical history in particular, because the Psalms go through the biblical record of the Old Testament and they follow out of the lives of these saints like David and those like the sons of Asaph, Moses, and others that have um, penned many of the Psalms. David is usually the one that's known because we read uh, David's name more than the rest throughout, but the compilation of the Psalms is written by more than just one human author, but it's written by one divine author. And so when we, when we look at the Psalms, <clears throat> we see that there are um, several books of the Psalms, uh, five books of the Psalms we see, and you'll notice that if you open up the book of Psalms, you'll see right above n- number one, you'll see book one. And maybe you weren't informed of this, but the Psalms are broken and compiled into several books. And <clears throat> there's almost a, a theological order to them, we think. Um, it's, it's somewhat of a debate because if you picked up five different commentaries on the Psalms, you might have five different views on what these meanings are, including, including the undenominational group that says there's no meaning and there's no theme in any of the books. Um, so everybody has a strong opinion on these things. And my initial desire was to actually take uh, each book of the Psalms and cover them under the heading that I found um, uh, Dr. Robert Godfrey really helped me. And I would, I would commend his study, Learning to Love the Psalms. I haven't went through the whole study of his Psalms. I did his whole Romans one. It was really good. But he has a book called Learning to Love the Psalms. And he has a, a Ligonier Connect study on the Psalms. Same title. And um, it's truly edifying. And... I plan to utilize him quite a bit. And what he did was he took the first book and he called it The King's Confidence in God's Care. And he does two things by doing that. One, he points us to the fact that the Psalms were foremost about Christ and to Christ. And second, he shows the theme of confidence that was built. Well, there are several themes one for each of the five books of the Psalms that I think he has probably the best theological outline for what each book in summation means. Um, So the first 41 Psalms really are your Psalms that would build your confidence. And in that particular book, you would also have um, chapters 3 through about verse 18 
or, or chapter three, verse chapter eight up to eighteen, deals with questions um, that you have along the journey, but yet confidence in God there. And then when you get up to um, some of the Psalms, you actually begin to see the narrative of the gospel. For example, I'll use Psalm twenty-three tonight to introduce the Psalms. And you'll know Psalm 22 is the cross. But Psalm 23 um, is believed to be resurrection. And Psalm 24, ascension. Well, there's a more expansive outline that I'm giving you that Brother God forgives that I think is very helpful and it's found in his learning to love the Psalms. And I'll, I'll probably refer to these things as we get started in the Psalms. <clears throat> But every book is actually a lot more um, organized than one may suppose. And I believe uh, Dr. Godfrey's done a good job to help us with that. <clears throat> so I want you to know about that work. And I want you to know it's useful because, for example, if you were struggling to be confident in God, then the first 41 are going to be places to go. But if you're struggling, you're struggling perhaps with other things. Um, and I can't recall them off mine right now. I, I didn't want to just give you a lecture tonight and just read a bunch of things. I wanted to, uh, not that that's not useful and, and we could do that, but I didn't want to just overload you with a bunch of information. I just want you to know there's an organization to this. There's a lot of uses and a lot of helps out there. And we're going to dive into those as God permit. But... <clears throat> But I have actually come up with, I think, a better scheme to work through the Psalms. And it takes several years to do this. Um, but I think it's going to accomplish the same goal. But it's going to allow it to be user friendly for me. And also, um, at some point, I want to employ our guys to come and um, just pick up where I'm at. And I think so. It, I want it to be doable, not just for me, but for our brother teachers and fellowship to be able to come and just pick up a psalm and carry it out as I would in, in, a, in the way that God's made them to teach it and be a blessing. And the way we can do that, <clears throat> I believe, is going chronologically through the Psalms. And uh, so my first reason I gave you for doing that is the user-friendliness, but there's even a more important thing. That is the, the breadth and diet of the congregation. And say, well, around Christmas, we've, we've got a lot of breadth, but we don't have, you know, a, a lot of diet. But what I mean is that a healthy um, spiritual feeding from the Bible with some diversity across the Bible requires, I think, that we look at um, a view that's further out from just simply the Psalms. And to do that, I'm employing a, a commentary that... <clears throat> um, I looked over in more detail this afternoon by Eric Lane, and it's two volumes called Focus on the Bible. It's, it's very inexpensive. Cumberland Valley Book Service, I think, sell these for 10 and 12 bucks a piece. They're very inexpensive paperbacks. But they're the best I've seen in giving us a user-friendly way and also a theological, uh, biblical theology to follow through with study. And in the back of the second volume, so if you were to get these, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to just get one volume. The second volume actually has the index you want at the very back. 
And it goes through all 150 Psalms. It gives a paragraph on each in the order that he thinks they occurred in the history of the Bible. So for example, um, if we follow this pattern, next week the first Psalm that Eric Lane believes is written, and again, some of these are debatable, but it's just the best I've seen and most um, uh, holistic that I've seen, is Psalm 90, where Moses, um, it's the period of Moses. And so there's a couple Psalms that we deal with with Moses. And that's the way it starts out, is it starts out with Psalm 90 and Psalm 91. And then you go into a period of Samuel, and you look at the victory at Mizpah in Psalm 115. And then you go into the period of David, and you start out by covering Psalm 1, Psalm 26, Psalm 23. These are early years of David. And you continue um, through Psalms that cover that early period. And you enter into another period of David's life, David's life at Saul's court. So in that, you would pick up at Psalm 35, Saul's first plot against David. And you read the psalm that actually has the biblical history behind it. Does that make sense? So you read, you read, you don't just get the psalm, but you get if there is any um, Old Testament narrative behind it. What was going on? What was he going through? What was the psalmist experiencing? What was he feeling? You get that as background. And I think that's tremendously useful. And it provides a little more diverse diet. So we're not just in um, trying to build confidence for a year straight. Because you need more than confidence, right? You need, you'll need a lot of other things. Because you're not always feeling lack of confidence for 52 weeks of the year. You're going to have a lot of different emotions and difficulties you're going to go through in a year. And so from a pastor's perspective, I, I think you need more. I think you need a, a very diverse diet being pulled from the Word of God as a whole. Not just the Psalms. So the Psalms are going to be our study, our focus, Lord permitting. But going chronologically, we're going to get actually also a chronology of the entire Old Testament as we go through. All the way to the Babylonian captivity. How long does that take? Easy four to five years. So it's an easy four to five year journey. But it's a consecutive, doable thing. Um, as we study psalm by psalm, study by study. And it provides the church with a, a solid biblical education in the Old Testament. And it's my aim to, <clears throat> again, make sure we're getting that broad view of the, of the Bible in the Old Testament, and we're also getting the proclamation of the Gospel from the New. So Sunday mornings, I'm dedicating largely to preaching the New Testament books. Sunday nights, dedicating to the um, Old Testament, in particular the Psalms. Calvin did not preach on any other Old Testament book on Sundays except the Psalms. Uh, A free resource that's available to everybody is Calvin's... um, Commentary on the Psalms. You can get on eSword. You can get on eBook. You could pull up online free. And Calvin is actually one of the most excellent, if not the most excellent commentary you can read on the Psalms. 
So that's another resource we will use regularly is Calvin. <clears throat> so, so Godfrey is good to help us actually look at some of the mechanics of the Hebrew. Um, there's some things he does to help us that uh, see some things in the psalm, like tonight in Psalm 23, the center of Psalm 23, the Lord is with me. Every one of those stanzas is going to be related to the Lord's with me statement. And Godfrey helps us see that from the text. Calvin is going to help us see things like in the first Psalm, when you read about the company of the wicked, you can't you know, stand, sit, walk in the company of the wicked. The first thing you want to do to become godly is you need to depart from the wicked. You need to change company, have the right friends. Calvin does some things in the way he writes, especially on Psalm 1, that just um, is amazing. I, I just... It's so devotional, it's so rich, and it'll, it's just good for your soul to sit down and read. And uh, <clears throat> there's no way to give you everything on the Psalms, uh, especially if we're looking at one Psalm on a Sunday night, but we can get you started, and that, that might be a source of food for you through the week, and it just might get you what you need to get through whatever trials that God uh, is taking you through for your good and, and formation and holiness. Um, <clears throat> so Godfrey helps us there, Calvin, and then Eric Lane is a modern commentator to give us a chronological order. I'm sure there's many different chronological opinions, because I think uh, someone even said it's controversial, some of the decisions Eric Lane has made, but, but Eric Lane's the only one I've seen that actually has done it well, that I can read, and that's why I want to employ using this. I'm going to encourage those who teach that the one resource to get would be to make sure you get Lane, and you can talk with me about that. I can make sure you get a copy um, of these two volumes for those who teach, because we want to follow the same order at least. You have freedom, and you can utilize Spurgeon, you can utilize Calvin, you can utilize other commentators. There's um, Plummer by Banner of Truth. There's uh, Dixon. A lot of these you can get free. Um, ebooks because of the, the nature of them out there. and They're just mightily available. So <clears throat> all that is there. So I want to give you a method. Uh, that there's, there's a method to this madness that's going on up here. Um, <clears throat> and I'm telling you what it is so that you can, uh, <clears throat> you can at least know why we're doing what we're doing is we really want to make sure we, um, we have a, uh, a good nourishing intentional study that the church is being uh, exposed to on Sunday nights that hopefully bolsters and complements um, the preaching of New Testament books on Sunday morning. So that's, that's the, the vision, the goal. <clears throat> All right. So the best way to get into this is to introduce you to the most known psalm, the most known psalm in the Bible. Right When people think of the Psalms, what Psalm do they think of most? It's Psalm 23. I mean, Psalm 23 is something that's known uh, by unbelievers and believers. It's, it's appreciated by all, but it's only really um, truly meaningful to believers because we know what it's about. 
Um, or do we? Or do we? Because a lot of times we may just gloss over this psalm. We may see it in kind of poetry and artwork, but we maybe have never studied the 23rd Psalm. And we will revisit this psalm as we uh, come around to David's period of his life here. So we won't be able to cover everything on it tonight. But I want to use it as an introduction to studying the Psalter. And I want to read this text uh, that's so familiar, but I'd hope that you would just open your ears to what God says, that what God has written here uh, through David in this psalm. First, it says it's a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I mean, just on the basis of its poetry, it is absolutely a stunning piece of literature. But for believers, this is the word of God. So let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Amen. And so as we look at this psalm, we're not merely reading the psalm, a poem that's of man. This is God's holy word. And God's holy word starts with his name. And it tells us the Lord. And that's L-O-R-D capitalized in our translation, which tells us this is the covenant name of God. This is the unpronounceable name that was revealed in the law. And David says here, this one is my shepherd. This is part of the early part of uh, David's life. And in this early part of David's life, I just want to read what Eric Lane says in summary here about, about this psalm. Psalm 23, David shepherds his sheep. It's very brief, just a couple paragraphs. The psalm is ascribed to David and clearly belongs to his early pastoral life. But whereas in the two previous psalms, uh, that's Psalm 26 and Psalm 1, as he's laying this out, in those two previous psalms, he's resting and contemplating. Here he's working. In these six verses, he gives us a full picture of the shepherd's daily round, walking, resting, feeding, facing danger, celebrating, and returning home. It may be possible to date this psalm more precisely than the time of his anointing by Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 12, alluded to in verse 5. So look at verse 5, and you see, he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemy, anoints my head with oil, my cup overflows. If so, David seems to have interpreted spiritually, not realizing its political significance until later. It enlarged his view of God, who was not generally thought of as a shepherd of his people at this time. Though later, it was to become perhaps the most popular metaphor of him. 
And um, Eric Lane gives a host of references to look up. This is probably because the Holy Spirit had Christ in view, as he himself confirmed by his discourse in John 10. Here we see David showing he was no ordinary worshiper, but a prophet too. And the nature of what I'm doing and reading this is I could stop and we could do like a three-hour Bible study just on the verses that we just skipped over. I'm making it more of sermonic and more of a study or a talk, if you would, than just um, an ongoing study. So we have to go quickly. And I want to take us from this reference right over to 1 Samuel. So turn in your Bibles over to 1 Samuel 16. And what you'll find here is the background to this psalm. Again, we're not interested in simply what man views this thing as to be. No matter if man views it as beautiful, wonderful, all those things, which could be true or not true about it, we are interested in God's view. And so over in 1 Samuel 16, I want to read a section here that he refers to as being the background of this particular text. And let's look at, make sure I got the, um, this is where Samuel comes to um, find a king for the people. And I'll pick up in verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these or hasn't chosen these. And then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of the oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So, I think you can see how the background of that will be related. You see the oil, you see the shepherd, he's shepherding the sheep. And here in the early life of David, it was likely that he penned Psalm 23 in reflection of this incident, the way he viewed what was going on. <clears throat> well, say a few things towards this is, um, imagine David who at one point in another Psalm says, even his father and mother put him out, but the Lord took him in. He's out in the field. He's, he's not even considered 
among the potential ones to be a king. He's a shepherd. He's like the shepherds we've just read about, keeping the flock by night, right? He's a shepherd. You wouldn't even consider shepherds eligible to give testimony in a court of the time. They were despised. You look all the way back during the time of Joseph, and they were, they were not even to be mentioned to those in Egypt because of the way they were looked down upon. But David's own family looked down upon him. And they sent him out to the field. And it's this one that God chose. And I'm not going too far to say this actually involves the doctrine of election. This is the man God chose. And when, when David understood God's electing grace and love, he penned Psalm 23. Because he now ascribed to God the title of shepherd. He now looked at God as the one who was sovereignly choosing him and sovereignly carrying him all the way through life. So I want to, again, these are going to be the necessary ones to teach, but I'm going to refer to a lot of people. I don't expect you to have the resources I'm pulling out, but I'm going to put before you some really good commentators. John Woodhouse on 1 Samuel by Crossway, their um, commentaries. I'm just preaching the word commentaries. I don't know of a better, better commentator on 1 Samuel. So I'm going to read it. Um, on 1 Samuel 16, I, I looked over this this afternoon uh, in preparation. And I said, this, I've got I've to share this. Um, it's, it's just, it, it, it connects it perfectly and it helps us understand what's going on and why this is so important. And so um, <clears throat> we picked up there at verse 7 and you could see the scripture there, but here's what he says. He says, God has a point of view. His point of view is different from the human point of view. If we take the text as it translates here, it tells us that God is not limited as humans are in his point of view. He is not deceived by outward appearances. He sees a person's heart. And that, of course, is true. At least one reason that your point of view is different from my point of view is <clears throat> that we both have limited points of view. We have limited experience, limited understanding, limited knowledge, and we make mistakes. And so it's hardly surprising that we all see lots of things differently. But God's not limited as we are limited. Therefore, God has a point of view, and that point of view will not be simply one more point of view among many others. His unlimited point of view will have an absolute validity. But verse 7 is almost certainly saying even more than this. Translate it more literally, the last sentence of verse 7 goes like this. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. For man sees according to the eyes, but the Lord sees according to the heart. This is important. This is vital to what David's seeing about his shepherd here. That is, when God sees, he does not just see things with his eyes. Um, with the eyes as we do, taking in only impressions. God sees according to His heart. 
That is, God's point of view is determined by his own will and his own purpose. And he sees according to his own intentions, his heart. And the fact of the matter is, is that Eliab, for all his good works, was not one God intended to make king. So God did not see Eliab in the same way that Samuel, just with his eyes, saw him. And this understanding of verse 7 is very important. In fact, it is, in my opinion, the key to understanding the whole of First and Second Samuel. That's pretty big on who is considered probably the foremost commentator on First Samuel to say this one verse is the key to understanding two of the most important historical books in the, in the entire Old Testament. It's, it's a big deal. <clears throat> he says more than that, it really, it really helps us understand life, the universe, and everything. That's even a bigger deal. This understanding of verse 7 is very important. It helps us understand the end of 1 Samuel 16.1, which literally reads, I have seen for myself a king among Jesse's sons. God had seen a king for himself because God sees with his heart. In verse 1, God was therefore saying precisely what Samuel said in 13.14. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. A man after God's own heart has been taken in popular Christian jargon to mean a particularly godly man, right? We, we know that. Somebody said that's a man after God's own heart. That the popular understanding of that is, is what Woodhouse is saying here. That's a particularly godly man, a man with a heart like God's. But he says, I don't believe that's what the words, um, I, don't, I don't believe that the words can mean that after a man after a man after God's own heart means a man of God's own choosing, a man God has set his heart on. A man after God's own heart is, if I could put it like this, talking about the place the man has in God's heart rather than the place God has in the man's heart. These vital statements on 1 Samuel 13, 14, and 16, 7 are about God's gracious and sovereign purposes rather than some quality in a man. It wasn't because David was a great man. It was because God was a great God. He was a shepherd. This is what David's getting at. He was, he was a man who was chosen according to God's heart and not according to man's eyes. So Woodhouse continues. <clears throat> there is a looming statement King David, uh, by King David himself, the man who will turn out to be the man after God's own heart, 2 Samuel 7.21. By the time we reach 2 Samuel 7, of course, a great deal has happened. Just notice what David said about what God had done for him. Quote, because of your promise and according to your own heart, he says, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. 2 Samuel 7, 21. Even if you didn't have the Hebrew expertise that Woodhouse has, you eventually are going to run into what he meant. Scripture interprets Scripture, and you see it happening right here. According to your own heart here is the same expression as after his own heart in 1 Samuel 13, 14. <coughs> that verse therefore asserts that the new king 
would be one whom God had sought out according to his own heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord told Samuel that the Lord sees not with eyes, taking in only impressions, but with his heart, his own personal intention and purposes. David had a particular place in God's heart, God's purposes, and that is what made him so very different from Saul. Isn't that what makes us different from the world? God's intention of his heart towards us? Come back to 1 Samuel 16, Woodhouse says, now that we understand the particular way the Lord sees, after Eliab, seven of Jesse's sons, paraded before Samuel, Samuel now saw as the Lord sees. <clears throat> he quotes verses 8 through 10. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> I'll leave it at that because at time's sake, there's so much more, so much more that I would like to in particularly cover, but this is an introduction. This is just intro. So back to, back to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I alluded to that this morning. Everybody has a poverty of glory, a poverty of righteousness. But David's saying, when the Lord is your shepherd, you're, you're not lacking. You're not lacking anything you need. If you have the Lord as your shepherd, you have everything you need. And, <clears throat> and he goes on through these different images. Some have divided up the psalm to speak of him as a shepherd, as a host, and as a companion. Or a, a shepherd, a companion, and a, a host, <clears throat> as the psalm leads. But there's throughout it, it's speaking... Uh, of a shared analogy by the end. Some would say that a shepherd doesn't pull up a table for his sheep. Um, but God is not past, as one says, mixing analogies. So I believe what we have here holistically is from beginning to end, he's speaking of the shepherd, but he's introducing ideas here that, that enrich the way we view God. And in particular, this is where Dr. Godfrey comes in, is psalms are often written chiastically, which means they're written in poetry that has a center that determines the meaning. And the center of this psalm that determines the meaning is the phrase, for you are with me. Godfrey goes on to say this. He says, because you're with me, the Lord's my shepherd. Because you're with me, God, you're my shepherd. Because you're with me, you make me lie down in green pastures. Because you're with me, you restore my soul. Because you're with me, you lead me in paths of righteousness. Because you're with me, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, <clears throat> I fear no evil. Your rod and staff comfort me. Because you're with me. Because you're with me, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Because you're with me, and you will be with me to the very end, your goodness and your steadfast love will follow me all the days of my life because you're with me. That's the point. That's the meaning of the psalm. That's the intended heart of the psalm. It's the emotional center that you have to get at, Godfrey says. And when you get that emotional center, then it unlocks what he's saying. He's saying this is about the Lord being with us. And how could he do any of these things if the shepherd wasn't with, with his people? 
you're not with your people, how in the world can you shepherd your people? It takes being with your people. I got thousands of references. I'm going to overload you. If you like to buy books, you're going to be dirt poor by January 2nd. So, one of the recommended books by Keith Matheson to read before you were golf, Reformation Bible Colleges, on the holiness um, of God on a biblical study by T. Desmond Alexander. And it's, I'll get the title later, I'm forgetting it, but it's a, it's a biblical study on Leviticus. You're like Leviticus. It's crazy. You're quoting Leviticus in Psalms. Well, he gives a biblical theology and he's saying the whole purpose, the whole purpose that it has been that God would bring his people to be with him and that he would be with them as a people. The whole Old Testament, he's saying that the holiness that's demonstrated in Leviticus was always this, this idea of making a way for sinful people to be with him who is holy. And, and of course, we know our Emmanuel does that by dying on a cross and God being the just and justifier of us all. That's the message of the Bible. And T. Desmond Alexander goes through and just proves point after point. You know what he starts with? The Psalms. You know what Psalm he goes into to begin with? Psalm 23. Do you think that's happenstance that I'd pick up that book? Just, I don't know. Seems like a good book to check out this time of year. No, it's not happenstance. It's the awesome, mighty, sovereign God just teaching, teaching a, a pastor of this church so he can teach the flock of the church so we can all be shepherded by the shepherd that's above. It's an amazing God we serve. And He wants us to know His desire is to be with us. And not only is His desire to be with us, He has made arrangements. And not only has made arrangements, He has secured it in His Son. And He will never leave you or forsake you any day of the year. Any year of your life. If He's your shepherd, He's with you for good. He's with you to the end of days. He's with you so that you can have confidence even if your parents had so much rejected you like David did, David's parents did. And he says, the Lord took me in. And he understood he had a shepherd who would now be with him and guess what? Put him in his house and never make him leave again. This is the early days of David. This is worship. No wonder, no wonder that many of the early Reformed churches, especially the Scottish tradition, took so much pride in singing these psalms. They're so rich. The Lord is my shepherd. He's not, he doesn't just say, the Lord is our shepherd. He's saying, this is my shepherd. It's personal. He's the one who shepherds me. You think about people that care for so many people at a time. David had to care for a whole kingdom eventually. He'd be like, here's this shepherd caring for, and it was traditional to see a king as a shepherd. And here's this shepherd providing for the kingdom, providing for the people, ruling the people, governing the people. And you have to stand back and wonder, who takes care of him? And Psalm 23 is the answer. Psalm 23, David's saying, here's who takes care of me. 
so I can take care of you. It's just a beautiful testimony and confession of faith. Um, as much as I love confessions of faith, as, lo- as much as I love the 1689, Psalm 23 is way, way above all. This confession of faith trumps any human writing. This is the Word of God. This confession of faith is a confession that ought to be sung. This confession of faith is a confession worth standing, living for, dying for. This confession of faith is authoritative over our lives. The Lord is my shepherd. And because He is, David says, I'm not lacking. Hebrew scholars say that the, the negative idea here is not the exact intended purpose. It's better to say I'm not lacking. I'm not lacking like saying that we don't fall short of the glory of God. The positive side, not just the negative. He makes me lie down in green pastures. <clears throat> There's rest where the shepherd leads. And he leads us. Isn't that, isn't that great? That... He actually leads us to where we need to be. And sheep are going to be very scared of of very rapidly moving waters. It's it's going to freak them out. They're going to be scared and move quickly away. And our shepherd, according to David, he says he leads them beside still waters to be refreshed. He restores my soul. That word is translated in some... um, in Psalm 19, I think it speaks about converting the soul. It doesn't mean that it's a new conversion. It's the idea that we constantly have to be revived and renewed by the shepherd. Um, he provides repentance when we sin. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And I put a quote, I put a quote in the <clears throat> bulletin and, and also on my substack that if I could capture the idea very simply, there's going to be a point when we can look back over life and see all the decisions, all the doubtful circumstances, all the things that happen in our life, good, bad, and in between. <clears throat> We're able to look and see God let us write. God led us exactly what through what we needed to go through. He took us to the people we needed to be around. He placed us in the circumstances we needed to be placed in. Everything. You know, you ever have doubts about, man, did this decision kind of crash my life or did this decision make it? Or No, see, for the Christian, there's, there's no happenstance. It is, we have a shepherd. He's leading everything what we might view is, our viewpoint is, man, I'm, gosh, I missed out on maybe God's plan for me and this or that or the other. No, not from God's perspective. Remember, we're concerned about how God sees His heart towards us individually and collectively. And from God's perspective, the idea is that we can, we can look from God's perspective and know with absolute certainty that our lives... Our, our steps are not in our power, but there will be a point in the last day we will look back and we will see He has done all things well. Every decision, 
everything we go through, everything that happens. Why? Because you're not left to be like a sheep without a shepherd. He's your shepherd. He has bound himself to you in the blood of Christ. He will not leave you. He will not let you go the way you would go to put yourself in danger ultimately outside of his care. He will not let you go outside of his will. He's controlling ultimately where you go and what way you go in life. Because he's your shepherd. Once you have that settled, there's no way to miss the blessing of God on your life and what he wants to accomplish in it. His purpose stands fast. It is interesting where you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I can't help but think of Bunyan and his picture there of how that valley is often traversed by Christians some, sometime in life. Scary, um, dark times. We can't see God. We can't see the circumstances rightly. But thanks be to God, it's not, our lives are not upheld by our sight. They're upheld by His heart. And uh, and I love after that center point for you're with me. It says your rod and staff come for me. It's it's wonderful. Even going into the next figure that you have those who, um, well, the rod and staff related to those events is that he has a he has a shepherd's crook to be able to pull you back from the cliff so you don't fall. And he has a club to beat off the enemy that you don't see. And then beyond that, in verses 5 and 6, and maybe verses 4b through, through the end, they're all in the future tense. So it's not about just having confidence in the present. It's about all this makes us confident about the future. If it's read, you will prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, it understands this fact. There will be enemies. God doesn't always remove the enemies or doesn't remove them always as quickly as we may want. But you know what he does do? He removes their significance. We begin to see them in the light of what is really significant. And that is our shepherd. By the way, he still has a shepherd's crook and he has a club. And a lot of our enemies may be near, but they can only go so far because even they fear that club. And so David says, as long as I can see my shepherd like that, If I can't see him, but if I can see his crook and his club, the significance of my enemies decreases. And then right back to the picture that's in Samuel, right? My, you anoint my head with oil. Now this is where, man, everybody takes figures like this and makes them mean something they want it to mean. But we read what it it was about. He actually was anointed a king. And certainly the cup overflowing is a figurative picture of just um, absolute joy. Um, 
Another psalm is written by David, I believe, says that wine makes the heart glad. So we would see a picture of joy here. And oil in that same psalm is referred to the holiness of God. But in particular for David, we know it's speaking of he was anointed a king. So he says, surely, right? Remember the first 41 verses or 41 chapters, I'm sorry, is about building confidence. Well, that's what David did. That's what God did in David's life. He built his confidence. And he could look at the future with a surely. He could say surely, without a doubt, absolute certainty, the goodness and mercy of God will follow me all the days of my life. That means to the end of the year, beginning of the year, the next year, all the days the very end. It's a play on words, some scholars think, because you have the enemy being portrayed, and obviously you see this constantly. Saul or Absalom or all these enemies coming at David, pursuing him, and David saying, but the stronger pursuer is that while I may have all that going on, their significance is lessened again of the enemy. Because it's God's goodness and His mercy that is pursuing me greater than any enemy. And so I can be confident with certainty that I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And that brings us back to T. Desmond Alexander's study. Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? I believe it's the title. Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? It's named after a psalm, but it's about Leviticus. The whole purpose of life leads us to being with God and God with us. The whole goal is that we would dwell in His tent and that we would be able to be in fellowship with God. And David's confidence is that I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. A lot of people use Psalm 23 because of a, you hear it like at funerals because of that. And it's actually applicable Because a Christian at the end of his life, when it's all said and done, may have this confidence to the grave. That indeed, I shall dwell, we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Life doesn't end here. But the challenge, of course, is the reason he could have this certainty is because he loved the house of the Lord here that he knows he'll dwell in the house of the Lord in eternity. So in application, I would say uh, John 10. Let's look there as we close. John 10. Because it's really about Christ. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold, the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up another way, that man's a thief and a robber. Mark that. Mark that because you'll see that again and again in life. People want to come their own way. They don't want to come through Christ. They don't want to come through the shepherd. 
They want to come their way. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. And again, notice, it's not that somebody wants to come the way up in order to just belong. They want to come up the way in order to lead and be in power. This shepherd is the only shepherd in this place. He who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name. He leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. He's with them. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they didn't understand what he was saying to them. I always love when they put those little annotations in there or that God put them in there. Somewhat comforting. He's teaching them all these things and they don't get it, but they get it later. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And don't you think Psalm 23, the way it ends, that David's saying he has an abundant life? Sure it does. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a, a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, see the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and he flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. This shepherd doesn't leave us. Jesus says he's that shepherd. He doesn't leave us. He's not going to leave his people. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And I must bring them in also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay it on my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he has a demon. He's insane. Why listen to him? And others said, these are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So you have this here. You have ultimately the Psalms are about Christ and they could be even to Christ when he came in this earth. He would read the Psalms. But I think the takeaway is that we have a shepherd who actually is with his people and he's with them forever. And I take great comfort in that, in being one who, um, for undeserving reasons, God chose to save me. And for undeserving reasons, God chose to save you. And so your confidence now, December 31st, 2023, Your confidence now, if held to this scripture, will only grow. January 1st, 2024, going forward, if you 
believe these things. If you remind yourself. So sing this song. There's things you can pull up to sing it. We have so many resources. Sing this song. Remind yourself who your shepherd is. Don't forget that. When it's dark and you can't see him, you can see something of him. So look at it. Look at what you can look at. Open the Bible and, and, and glean and grab hold of the sights that God does grant through dark periods of life. And don't grow overly discouraged. Don't throw away your confidence that would keep you from serving God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength in the year to come. But let your confidence be as strong as your shepherd is. Don't give up. Especially in a time when there's so much to be accomplished. Don't waste the years or the days ahead of you. Trust you have a shepherd. So let's stand and sing praise to our God and we'll come back for the benediction.